Imagine an operation in which 10,000 law enforcement people worldwide arrested 1,000 organized violent criminals. Well, that's what happened in 2021 in an operation known as Trojan Shield. A Justice Department team led that effort. Team leaders have won this year's Service to America Medal for Safety, Security, and International Affairs. One of them, Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California, Josh Miller, joins me now. Mr. Miller, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Tom. And my first question is, how could you possibly corral 10,000 people in law enforcement worldwide to bear on this? What kind of effort did that take? Yeah, so there was a lot of coordination. We had built up relationships over about 18 months, two years. And yeah, try to get 10 versus 10,000 people involved was really kind of a huge effort. But that involved weeks and weeks of coordination and making sure that everybody understood the strategy, the timeline, and the goals of the investigation. Okay, and let's get to the investigation itself, Operation Trojan Shield. That could be a lot of things. What was the goal here, and what was the whole effort all about? So the goal of the investigation was to collect evidence against criminal users, drug traffickers, money launderers, people involved in violent acts, so organized criminal groups. It was to collect evidence to be used against them to prosecute them for their crimes. Was this primarily in the Western Hemisphere and the nations that we commonly think of in South America and Central America as the source for a lot of this, cartel-type people? So a lot of the users were in Australia, New Zealand, South America, and Europe. Those are the primary users were in those countries. So really all over the world, in other words? Yes, it was a worldwide operation. But these types of things happen all the time. There's illegal drug, there's illegal human trafficking, and on and on. What about Trojan Shield? What was the unifying principle here? Why these thousand among probably 10,000 you could have arrested? Yeah, these individuals were usually the, the distributors, the leaders, individuals that were committing the most violence. And so those were the individuals that were focused on both on the United States and then also on other countries that we worked with. And I want to ask about the security, both of the data and of the fact of the operation going on, and the fact that not every nation has the same approach to corruption and bribery as the United States does, ideally. How did you keep that all under control with, again, multiple nations and multiple bureaus and law enforcement agencies? That was one of the more challenging aspects of the investigation because we knew that to be successful in this operation, we had to share information, we had to share data. So we started out with just a few countries that the United States has very strong relationships with and then branched out from there. But towards the end, we just had to kind of take that leap of faith and uh, work with countries that may not have the same you know, commitment to uh, public safety and to derailing public corruption. But in the end, we knew that we had to share data in order to be successful. And the arrests then took place in multiple nations eventually? Yeah. So the, the big takedown, which was called Joint Action Day, was on June 7, 2021. It involved over 10,000 law enforcement officers throughout the world, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. In the investigation stage, how did that work? Was it primarily database work or did you have a combination of data types of techniques and also people, you know, human intelligence and and snitches and so forth, informants on the streets. Yeah, so uh, each country worked a little bit different, but there were confidential human sources that were involved throughout the operation. And you had other individuals, it was data-driven, but we were obtaining information on a regular basis on drug shipments, on violent acts, 
on other criminal endeavors that were that were taking place. And so, you know, depending on the situation, obviously violent acts, we had to minimize the threats to life. And then drug seizures, we had to analyze the data and, and make the seizure if, if we needed to. We're speaking with Josh Meller. He is assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of California, and along with two people from the FBI, a winner of this year's Service to America Medal for Safety, Security, and International Affairs. And just tell us about some of the assets from the United States. I mean, there were at least two big units of the Justice Department involved. What kind of deployment did it take from just U.S. assets? So primarily it was the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of California, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, San Diego branch. And while there's just myself and there's several other assistant U.S. attorneys that were involved, and then you had the primary case agents, but you had over 100 FBI agents that uh, came from other parts of the United States come and assist with reviewing messages, analyzing messages, and putting that information in a place, in a format to be understood and shared with our foreign partners. And to what extent does the U.S. attorney function then inform the FBI as to what kind of evidence will be needed that eventually you can use and hold up in court when you do the prosecution piece after the FBI has gathered the evidence and maybe conducted the arrests or assisted in them? So we work hand in hand with the FBI, so we consider ourselves to be partners. And so every step of the way from the beginning of the investigation to the end of the investigation, we're working together, we're meeting, we're collaborating and discussing those issues throughout the investigation. So it's not where it's just at the end, we meet and and discuss what type of evidence we need, collaborating and partners throughout the entire investigation. And what about injuries, deaths, shootings? I mean, did people come through it pretty much safely, at least on the good guy's side? So on law enforcement, there, there weren't any, any casualties, there weren't any unforeseen incidences. And one of the great things about the investigation and being able to share information with foreign partners and foreign authorities is being able to prevent those violent acts from, from occurring, whether it's kidnappings, murders, or other violent acts, to be able to prevent those throughout the investigation. In total, we prevented about 150 murders from being completed. And some of the techniques are pretty interesting that you use to gather information. It almost sounds like Better Call Saul or something, but you managed to get phones that were secretly sending you the information on those phones, the conversations, but the criminals thought they were just burner phones, correct? How'd that work? Yeah, so so this market existed before the FBI entered this space, and this application actually existed beforehand. It's just that the Australian Federal Police, the FBI, uh, using a confidential human source, were able to exploit that application and to be able to collect the data, which you know criminals thought was encrypted. In reality, it was being sent to the FBI Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So in many ways, the criminals indicted and convicted themselves. They actually, in our indictment, uh, they're influencers. They would tout the application. They'd say it was super secure. Not even the FBI could crack it. So they were promoting this product to other criminal organizations. And from there, uh, this was you know, organically spread throughout the world. And so there was a wiretapping, so to speak, for lack of a better word. It wasn't wires, but wireless tapping. We worked with a foreign partner that was located in the European Union to obtain the data. So, yeah, there's no, no, no actual wiretapping, but we, we worked with the foreign government to obtain the, the data. And during your time overseeing this, was it pretty much a full-time job for you? I mean, there's a lot going yeah. on in Southern California. Yeah, no, besides the uh, good weather and surfing, yeah, no, we uh, we work 24 hours a day sometimes because, you know, with all the different foreign partners we're working with and the time changes, 
So we had a lot of early morning phone calls, really late phone calls. And especially as we got toward uh, Joint Action Day, this was more than a full-time job and you know a lot of travel. And one of the things that um, I think kind of gets missed is that this happened all through COVID. And so you can just imagine this type of operation happening in the height of COVID and being able to travel, to be able to have you know lots of people in a room, to view and analyze and share data was by itself a huge undertaking. And do you think you could, pardon the expression, get away with it again, that same technique, now that this has been so widely covered over the years, a lot of articles have been written about this, could you get those types of secretly supplied phones into the hands of, say, the cartel people or, you know, the fentanyl people and so on? Yeah, I mean, so this was, you know, the stars aligned. So it's, it's unlikely we could replicate it in the same fashion. But, you know, there's a bunch of creative agents, prosecutors that are always kind of working towards, you know, how to combat crime. And one of the goals of this investigation is to show uh, criminal organizations that we weren't afraid to get into space. And, you know, they should think twice before they pick up another phone that they think is encrypted. And I imagine from those arrests, the prosecutions are still going on. What's the status of the cases? How many have resulted in convictions and what's going on there? Yeah, so obviously uh, specific cases can't talk about, but there have been prosecutions throughout the world, a lot in Australia and a lot in Europe and other prosecutions. So there's prosecutions in the United States that, that are ongoing and obviously can't talk about those, but there have been prosecutions kind of throughout the world over the last two years. But you have gotten some convictions also. Yeah, uh, especially in Europe, there's been a lot of convictions and some pretty significant sentences that have been handed out. All right. Well, these things take time. Sometimes it's years till you get someone actually permanently behind bars, fair to say. Yeah, no, these you know, prosecutions can take a long period of time. Josh Meller is Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. And along with the FBI's Nicholas Chevron and Stephanie Stevens, he's a winner in this year's Service to America Medal for Safety, Security, and International Affairs. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank you. uh, Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.